Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia-focused, meaning that we are going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law, but occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right, now to the studio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Yeah, folks, you know, we ask you from time to time to please write us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com to suggest any topics that you'd like to hear on this podcast and to give us feedback or ask us questions. That's right. One of the questions we've been asked recently is, could you please do something that does not mention pandemics or COVID-19. And boy, have we delivered today, haven't we, Wade? You know, that's right, Tane. Um, In fact, the the, the topic that we are discussing today, I'm not sure anyone has ever asked us to talk about. No one has ever asked us to talk about it and probably never would. Um, In fact, this is a topic that only my mother, the English teacher, would ever ask for. Uh, But let's be honest, it's one that many of our judges and quite a few lawyers could use some help with if they just took an honest look at their own work. So today's topic is, drumroll please, judicial writing. Oh, wow. That's great. Now, before... You, you yank your AirPods out and throw them into the woods or drive your car into the next telephone pole or bridge or similar. Let me promise you that we're only going to spend a short time on this topic and that we will try to give you a few simple tips to improve your writing. That's right. Now, let's start with some real basics. First, there are a couple of books that we'd like to recommend to anyone who is interested in improving their writing. Neither one of these books are really boring, and they're both relatively short. The first book is a book called The Elements of Style by Strunk and White. It's only 75 pages long and is, for an instructional manual, actually mildly entertaining. The second is a book by the man that I consider to be one of America's best contemporary writers, and that's Stephen King. Stephen King's book is simply called On Writing. Now, It's 285 pages in in paperback, but it focuses on writing fiction, not the kind of dry stuff that we write. And it also has a lot of funny passages. It strays into autobiography a time or two. And it also contains some of King's trademark salty language. Tane, I'm sorry to to sort of stop here, but you know how many pages this book is in paperback? That means you have it. Wait, I've read it cover to cover, and uh, also, I do research for this podcast. Well, we're trying to give everybody a little bit of piece of this pie, and um, we hope that you enjoy this this episode on judicial writing. Yeah, we'll get to some quotes from those two books later, but at first, we're going to start with some simple rules. Rules? Rules? Don't you mean, like, guidelines? Uh, Okay, guidelines for judicial writing. Now, let me stop here and tell you that these rules, uh, I mean guidelines, um, they're not located anywhere in any manual or book. I mean, they should be, but they aren't. They're more like Tane's guidelines to good writing, not not the world's or thesaurus. or It's Tane's version of guidelines for good writing. Yeah, that's probably fair. 
This is also the place where several people lose their freaking minds. And when we teach new judge orientation, we literally had one of the most calm judges and he'll know and everybody who was in his class will know. He just, it's like he threw his pen down and said, really, really? Wanted, We've got to learn that to, too. Are you kidding he wanted, me? He wanted to fight me. I think it, it, <laughs> we talked him down off the ledge and, and everything got better. But when you are asking judges to learn all this new law and all these new procedures and also to unlearn some bad habits that they have been, I guess, learned in law school and then reinforced for 10 or 20 or 30 years of practice. It, it's, it, it's a tough ask. Yeah, it really is. Well, what I'd like to do is just start with what I call the ABCs of judicial writing. I mean, that's easy enough to remember. Wow. This is kind of like Sesame street. Elmo says A is for audience. <laughs> oh, folks, I didn't know. I didn't really appreciate the full depth of what that was going to be. Um, that was pretty awesome. And that was a first take move, I have to admit. So that was a combination of hilarious and scary. But, you know, when God was handing out talents, I was kind of near the end of the line and that was all that was left over. But seriously. This first guideline is remember your audiences. So what are some of the audiences we can write for, Elmo? I mean, Tane? <laughs> well, when we start out our judicial orders, we should always remember the parties. Right. Those audiences are pretty important. The parties have to follow your order. They have to comply with what you say. Now, how many times has a party in a case ended up in a subsequent contempt action because of their misunderstanding, and I'm putting that in air quotes again. I know though nobody can see it. It's in air quotes. Because of their misunderstanding of one of your orders. But let's be honest. It's, it, it, sometimes it's not their fault. Oops. So who else? You said audience says. You said plural. Who else? Right. And then the next one is the lawyers. Uh, the, you know, the people that we're writing for. Um, and there's some real good reasons for that. Yeah, the lawyers are going to eventually probably have to explain this order to their clients and translate any of the legalese into some practical application to these folks' lives. And their clients always don't don't always want to hear what the lawyer has to say, to be honest. So they'll have to argue about any ambiguities and why does this say and, and that says may, and that says or, or that says shall, and what's the difference? So it helps them to do their job when we write well, when we're clear in what we're intending. Yeah, that's right. So who else? You said, okay, audience says, is that, that's two. Is that all? No, don't forget. One of the other audiences you're always writing for is the appellate courts. You mean the folks that grade our papers. So they yeah. are definitely in our one of our audiences. The appellate courts need to understand what we ruled, why we ruled that way. You know, I think a lot of reversals could have been avoided by a simple explanation of facts or law that, that influenced the decision. And if the judge had been maybe a little more in depth in explaining the decision that they made, the appellate courts will always be a part of our audience. And so we have to keep them in mind when we write. Definitely. So is that it? No, I think the next audience that we also have to always keep in mind is the general public. We've talked about the parties. We've talked about the lawyers who are also involved in the case. We've talked about the appellate courts who might read the decision. 
But you shouldn't ever forget that the public is also potentially an audience to what you write. You know, exactly. That, uh, you think about that difficult or controversial case, the, the ruling that has a lot of public attention to it, there might even be a, a basically a spotlight on it. Um, so when whatever you write is going to be important, you know, the judicial canons don't allow us to go out on front of TV cameras and explain why we, do so, why we did what we did. You know, put up the PowerPoint to to show the the sequence of events or the logic of the thinking. So, you know, your your judicial order can and probably should explain it, especially when you have a high profile case. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, never forget we're also elected officials, and sometimes because of those judicial canons, that may be the only opportunity that you ever have to say, hey, here's why I did what I did, or here's what the constraints of the law were that we were operating under. So um, I think that's something that we should always remember in terms of audiences. So is that all of our audiences, Tang? Yeah, that's the that's all of the audiences that came to mind for me. So the next gu- guideline, you know, you said A, B, C. So cue the creepy Elmo voice. What's the B stand for? says B is for brevity. Dude, that is unbelievable. That is unbelievable. I've known you for 30 years. I did not know you had that skill. Unbelievable. You know, I didn't, I didn't feel it appropriate to break out the Elmo. Until <laughs> yeah. Now. How does that come up in conversation? Eh? <laughs> exactly. Um, so listen, in all writing, brevity is very important. Uh, be brief. Oscar Wilde said brevity is the soul of wit. And what he probably would have said it if he hadn't been trying to be so legalistically pithy would have been, you are a bunch of the most verbose jack wagons I've ever encountered who will use 18 words when one will do. And your paragraphs go on so long that I need a roadmap to follow your train of thought. So why don't you just write shorter? Oscar Wilde is an angry man, huh? Yeah, definitely. I can't do his voice either. I wish I could. It would probably sound British, but that's all I know. Um, but I will give you another tip, and I, I think this was a pretty good one. Yeah, Wade, my high school English teacher, Roger Hines. Hey, the greatest shout out teacher, to Roger Hines. Roger Hines, the greatest teacher in all teacherdom. Uh, he once suggested that taking the time to edit was the key to successful composition. He said that your motto should always be, if I had had more time, I would have written less. I've got some teachers that probably would have said that to me specifically. Um, <laughs> you know, in his book, allegedly, Stephen King says his formula for editing gleaned from a book publisher who once rejected one of his works is really long books. (laughs) Yeah. Is second draft equals first draft minus 10%. That's really not a very bad formula. Yeah. You know, as judges, we're often guilty of verbosity for verbosity's sake. And you know, that's just a sin. Using that word. (laughs) Well, maybe that too. Don't you think that that's sort of, honestly now, seriously for a minute, don't you think that's a product of the volume of writing that we do and the time constraints under which we write? We really can't spend the time editing the way we should? Yeah, sure. And and I'm also guilty of a bit of laziness at times, too. I mean, if someone hands me a draft and it looks pretty good, I'm apt to overlook a few run-on sentences and marathon paragraphs in favor of getting the work done. We all are, and that's understandable. Hey, but these are guidelines, not rules, right? That's exactly right. So what what kind of things can you do to achieve brevity? 
Well, you know, it's really simple things like um, concentrate on writing shorter sentences. You know, cut out some of those unnecessary uh, adjectives and adverbs. And also, hold up, hold up, hold up. (laughs) Adjectives, adverbs. What about uh, conjunctions? Yeah, conjunctions are, are kind of a signal for you. If you're seeing more than one conjunction in a paragraph, that, uh, or I'm sorry, in a uh, sentence, that sentence is probably a run on sentence. If you see right. an and and a but and, a, and an and and a because in the same sentence, uh, you just sing that little song, conjunction, junction in your head, and uh, you'll know that's probably a run on. Schoolhouse rock. Exactly. I know. We're all just right. So all, shorter all sentences. school bases here. Shorter paragraphs, shorter sentences. Right. Fewer adverbs and adjectives. I mean, we get a little descriptive now and again. So now, Tane, let's be candid. You come from a journalism background, right? Yeah, that's yeah, that's exactly right. My degree is in uh, my undergraduate degrees in journalism, and you know, in journalism classes, they actually taught us uh, that a long sentence or a paragraph is scary to the reader. In other words, that before they even read it, if they see that it's really long, it frightens them off before they even begin to trudge through your verbiage. Um, shorter paragraphs are just visually more appealing. Shorter people are more appealing. <laughs> That's so true. I, I, Randy I Newman. Think, I, so a perfect example. Peter Dinklage, an awesome person and uh, of smaller stature. And very anyway. appealing. Anyway, that's all I need to say about that. All right. So now we've done brevity without much brevity. We've done audiences. What's the C, Elmo? Um, C stands for clarity. Oh, I just can't help it. I can't even look at you while you're doing this. So, folks, we have a Zoom uh, meeting going on just so we can kind of take some visual cues from each other. And when he starts, I can't really even look. It's 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 like a watching a slow car wreck. Yeah, yeah um, but ne- nevertheless, Elmo says C stands for clarity. So write in a way that you can be understood by anyone who reads your order, the, the same audiences we've been talking about. In a yeah. way, it kind of goes back to... Remembering that whole concept of multiple audiences, you make sure that what you're saying is equally clear to an appellate judge as it is to a party. Yeah, one of the problems is that we were taught in law school that everything we write should sound like it came out of the King James Bible or something. I mean, isn't that right? <laughs> you know, yes, that's what we were told, but no, that's not a great plan. You know, as I, as I said a, a few minutes ago with the rule, I mean, I mean, guideline, you're writing for different audiences at the same time. All of those audiences might not be legal scholars. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Think about it. Most of what we write as judges is meant to instruct or to guide or to order or maybe even persuade an audience. In order to do that, we really have to be clear. You know, it, it's a it's an old phrase and everybody rolls their eyes when you say it, but you come back to that old world, old word, legalese. Yeah. We try to sound sometimes a little too judgy. And again, I'll be the first to admit I do the same thing, but these are just guidelines to keep in mind as we're writing. Exactly. You know, all that stuff they taught us in law school that says that makes our writing sound more eloquent and really important really just sometimes makes it harder to understand. True, but it does make us sound so doggone judicial, right? (laughs) Yeah. So, well, I guess that leads us to the next and most controversial part of our dis- discussion. And folks, I, I, I had the pleasure of being 
the te- the test dummy for this when we did it for new judges the very first time we did it and we used just a random order i just threw tane two or three random orders i had on my computer and we really couldn't get through about three pages in the time that we had because of all the red lines and marks and arrows and present participles or whatever so tane tell everybody where we're at well, it was some of the most fun I've ever had uh, in teaching with you, Wade. But uh, yeah, the next point uh, that we make is one of those things that may tempt you to swerve into a fixed object or hurl your earbuds into the woods, but stick with us on this topic. So maybe it'll help if we first tell them what it is instead of all this buildup without and whatever we have quotes from Stephen King and the King James Bible and the thing about zombies. Wait, zombies? Elmo loves zombies. Oh, sorry. I just do that. So let's just rip the Band-Aid off right here. And I'm telling you, I have been criticized about this since I was in fifth or sixth or seventh grade in creative writing class. Um, Active and passive verbs. Yep. We're going to talk about those. But then we're going to talk about Stephen King and zombies. I'm just trying to keep keep our audience interested. Wait. Now. (laughs) You you think that's going to be it? You think that's going to be the thing? Stephen King and zombies. Stephen King and zombies. Yep, that's it. So now that we know everybody just had a collective flashback like I did to seventh grade grammar, we also know that 99% of you, that that flashback was fairly painful for lots of reasons, not only having to do with your writing. So hang in there. So, so let me just explain this, folks. Using the passive voice weakens your writing. Uh, there's no doubt about it. It stems from the use of what are called passive verbs. And don't get all freaked out on me. I'm going to get real simple with what we're talking about here. But here's a little refresher. With active verbs, the subject of the sentence is doing something. So Jane ran down the road. Okay, Jane's doing something. That's an active sentence. Or, for example, of something that comes up with us frequently, Bill burglarized the house. Now, this is the point at which most robber, I mean, most uh, lawyers and other people would say, Bill robbed the house. And we all know houses don't get robbed. People get robbed, not houses. Anyway, don't make me go off on that tangent because I get really upset about it. But an active sentence would be Bill burglarized the house. Bill, the subject of the sentence, did something. He burglarized the house. So passive verbs basically see the subject of the sentence as having something done to it or them, right? Exactly. So what would be an example of that, Wade? So you kind of, back to your whole thing about using shorter sentences and all this, it's all kind of flowing together. Now, instead of you, don't use two verbs or adverbs or whatever when one would do. So the, the example would be the house was burglarized. So you got the was as the sort of the setup verb to burglarize. Yeah. And in that example, it may not be readily apparent why the, why the sentence is weaker when we say the house was burglarized. But think about it. In that sentence, who did what to whom? The house didn't do a doggone thing. It just sat there and was burglarized. There's really no action in that sentence at all. It's talking about something that happened to the house and the subject essentially is completely lost. Is burgled a thing? Like uh, somebody <laughs> burgled something? Yeah, I think it is. I think it absolutely, that's a great word. And so what did we learn here? We sure as heck didn't learn who burglarized the house. You know why? Because with passive voice, the true subject of the sentence is omitted. 
Yeah. Stephen King gives a great example in his book. He says this, my first kiss will always be recalled by me as how my romance with Shana was begun. <laughs> King says, seriously? Or, oh man, who farted, right? <laughs> then he says, how about my romance with Shana began with our first kiss? I will never forget it. That's better, right? Yeah, you know, and we often use passive voice without even knowing it for all kind of reasons. But the most common reason, I think, is because we're trying to be timid, I guess, a little less aggressive. Yeah. So we don't want to come straight out and say harder, difficult realities. Yeah, Stephen King puts it this way, and I really kind of like this. He says, I think timid writers like passive verbs for the same reason that timid lovers like passive partners. The passive voice is safe. There's no troublesome action to contend with. The subject just has to close its eyes and think of England, to paraphrase Queen Victoria. This King book is kind of bizarre. It's awesome. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really twisted, twisted uh, take on how to write. And that's what I really like about it. So whether you're closing your eyes and thinking of England or whatever, or writing a particularly important order, the passive voice makes you a weaker writer. But Tane, all this talk about active and passive voice and verbs and England and Queen Victoria and all that, sometimes it's hard to remember when it sounds right in your head when you're writing. So is there a better way to remember it? And folks, this is where I just, the top of my head went. Well, of course there's a better way to remember it, Wade. And let's say it together. Zombies. Zombies. Exactly. Now you're thinking these dudes are definitely crazy, right? But no, if you want to, if you Keep want saying to identify, no, they'll believe it eventually. What's that? Keep saying no. They'll believe it eventually. No, we're not crazy. <laughs> no, we're not crazy. If you want to identify the passive voice rule in your writing, the only thing you have to remember is the zombie rule. So much easier than trying to remember active versus passive rules. Now, tell us what that is, Wade. I'll be honest with you. When I first heard this, I thought he'd lost, I really did think Tane had lost his mind, but it's really kind of simple and it makes it a little bit easier. When you write a sentence, if you're wondering whether it is in the passive voice, if you can put the words by zombies at the end of the sentence and the sentence and the sentence still potentially could make sense, that's a passive voice sentence. Okay, yeah. So let's let's do this with an example to make it simple. In our previous example, Bill burglarized the house. Active or passive? Well, let's apply the zombie rule. Bill burglarized the house by zombies. Makes no sense, right? But let's use the other example. The house was burglarized by zombies. It makes sense. So that is clearly a passive voice sentence. So here's another one. Let's say that the first sentence is, the meeting is at 7 o'clock. Or, the meeting will be held at 7 o'clock. So if you want to know which one's passive, the meeting will be held at 7 o'clock by zombies. Not the meeting is at seven o'clock by zombies. That makes no sense. Right. So obviously the meeting will be held at seven o'clock is the passive voice sentence because it makes sense. Now, this is Stephen King's example, and he explains it this way. The timid fellow writes, 
the meeting will be held at seven o'clock because that somehow says to him, put it in this way and people will believe you really know. Purge this quizzling thought. Don't be a muggle. These are Stephen King's words. <laughs> Throw back your shoulders and stick out your chin and put that meeting in charge. Right. The meeting's at seven. There, by God, don't you feel better? See, King's got this little thing about passive voice. But then King also has an unabashed hatred of the passive voice, as I said. You know, this whole talk of zombies gives me flashbacks. You know, when you say, well, if it makes sense, if you put by zombies a thing that doesn't exist, I mean, it was just a horrific thing when he would flash up there the next sentence and the next sentence and the next sentence in an order, and it's by zombies, by zombies, by zombies. And, and it, it kind of halfway made sense. I was like, God, that poor guy who got that order, he doesn't know if he's coming or going. <laughs> yeah, and every time I write something on one of Wade's quotes in red, he gets really upset with me. So. Just flashbacks to seventh grade. Now, listen, folks, I'm going to I'm going to confess something with respect to this active and passive verbs thing. This is more of a do as I say, not as I do situation. I admit I stray into the passive voice. We all do. Even Stephen King admits that he doesn't. He says this. I won't say there's no place for the passive tense. Suppose, for instance, a fellow dies in the kitchen, but ends up somewhere else. Quote, the body was carried from the kitchen and placed on the parlor sofa. That's a fair way to put it. Although was carried and was placed, still aggravate me. King used a much saltier bit of language there. Uh, what, Sting, what Stephen King says he would embrace is, Freddie and Myra carried the body out of the kitchen and laid it on the parlor sofa. But why does the body have to be the subject of the sentence anyway? It's dead for Christ's sake. Again, Stephen King's language. But what's a parlor? I mean, I mean, <laughs> who has a parlor? I don't have a parlor. There's no parlor in my house. So the point is that you need to be aware of the passive voice and use that knowledge to strengthen your writing whenever possible. That's exactly right. Okay, now that we've all taken that painful trip down the grammatical memory lane, let's move on to something less painful, and those are some other tips for better writing. You know, the next, the next idea that, that you shared with some of the new judges is this concept of an inverted pyramid. You talked about your journalism background and said that journalists use the idea of an inverted pyramid to emphasize the need to put things of most importance first. That makes the writing stronger. And to be honest with you, it makes even the, make sure that even the laziest reader gets the point or gets the main important ideas of what you're writing I mean, for goodness sake, they're right there at the top. Yeah, and I'm not saying that any of our audiences are lazy readers. Certainly not the appellate courts, because as we always say on this program, we have nothing but the deepest and unabashed respect for our brethren on the appellate courts. But some of the other audiences, the public, for example, or maybe the parties, they might be really lazy and not make it down to those later paragraphs. So do you use Cistron? If you have brethren, do you have cistern, or should we just do. say colleagues? Cistern. It's a. It's a. No, cistern is like a well thing. It's a collection of water. Yeah, exactly. So I. I don't. I brethren and cistern. Yeah, um, on the bench. Um, all right, let's get back to this though. Journalists say that the inverted pyramid style means putting essentially the who, what, when, where, why, and how near the beginning. 
so whether you're structuring a paragraph or an entire order, you take those important points and you try to put them up front where people will see them. You know, it seems like a pretty simple concept, but as judges, we often get caught up in building drama before we write the words so ordered, or we sort of drop the mic at the end of the order, or we whatever other magic phrase it's be that we might utter to bring the genie out of the bottle with all of our vast powers. Yeah. And it's really unnecessary. You and I talked about that with respect to delivering a verdict at the end of a, of a jury trial and how we sometimes are guilty of trying to build that drama. And it's really not part of our job. No, it's not. And it causes a mess, but back to this, you know, in the final section of this podcast, of this episode, we're just going to suggest a checklist for good orders. Just something that if you can just put it in the back of your brain and, and make sure it sort of rattles around in there when you're writing, maybe your writing gets four levels better. Yeah, absolutely. And at this point, I'd like to say uh, many thanks to professors uh, Dr. Elizabeth Francis and the Honorable Karen Hunt, who's a retired judge from Alaska, for a course that they teach at the National Judicial College. Uh, it's an expanded course on the elements that we're about to give you. So there are seven or eight key elements that should probably appear in just about every order of substance that you write. By no means do all of them have to appear in lengthy paragraphs, and some may even be combined because it makes more sense. Or for brevity. Oh, you didn't do it in the voice. Okay. Or for brevity. Brevity is good. I like brevity. That's B. Wow. <laughs> right. Uh, that. likes brevity. That. So, but these elements, they make a good checklist to see if your work is cohesive, clear, comprehensive, or another C word you could come up with. That's right. You know, sometimes we know what we mean when we write something, but it's not as clear to others when they read it. I can't so tell you how often that's true. Oh, absolutely. What's the first element, Wade? Statement of the case. Yeah, this element, this is the element that is intended to set the scene of whatever it is that you're writing. It's kind of the who, what, when, where, why, and how of the inverted pyramid. So the statement of the case is ideally where you identify the court, the parties, maybe who was present, and the type of case that we're talking about. The good news is that this information is usually included in the caption and the first paragraph of what it is that you're writing. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's something that most of us are already doing anyway, and it's kind of intuitive. So, Tame, what's the second issue? The second element of, of uh, judicial orders is the issue section, and this one's simple enough. It just sets out what the party's contentions are and the issues arising from those parties' contentions. Isn't this sometimes stated as a series of questions to be answered by the court or sort of a statement of what the court is attempting to decide in this order? Right. You'll often see that used that technique used in appellate opinions. So the third element is the summary of the decision. Now, this That's section, I, I think, is kind of optional, isn't it? Yeah, it sure is. It, it's, it, it, it's essentially for the lazy reader. It sort of gives you the cliff notes or the judicial equivalent of turning to the last page of the book and telling you how it's going to end, then telling you how they got there. It's a spoiler with no alert. But this section essentially of a, is a summary of the court's ruling in the final section of the order, like the court is going to deny this order, and now let me tell you why. 
Right. And if you think about it from the perspective of our inverted pyramid earlier, putting all of this information at the beginning of the order really helps the reader. Maybe it helps the appellate court. Maybe it helps the parties to understand what they're about to hear explained in the order. Here's what we're doing. And then here's why we're doing it. So now, what do you do, whether you put that in there or not, what's the next section? Well, the next section that you want to have, and again, these are things that should be included in the order at some point, uh, even if you don't do them in exactly this order. But the next thing is findings of fact. And these would include a recitation of the standard of proof that you're going to be using in the case, along with the facts. The standard of proof is simple enough. Um, it's usually a case or cases that are on point guiding the court in its decision, guiding you in your decision. It's not the place for some sort of lengthy analysis that will come later. It's just a recitation of the standard that's being used. And then the facts in the case will include both the evidentiary facts and the factual conclusions that are made by the court. It also includes any credibility determinations that are made in hearing the evidence. And then the next section, I guess, is the principles of law. This is an important section because if you get these wrong, there's a real potential for reversal. And we dislike reversals. Yeah, they're bad. That's a yeah, B word. That is a B word. Be sure to, to state your principles of law correctly and quote them and their sources where applicable. Remember that appellate court audience, as well as the parties and the lawyers, and maybe even the public too, when you're, doing, when you're writing this section. That's right. In the principles of law section, you want to include such things as the elements of a crime in a criminal case, what has to be proved in order to show whether that crime has been committed. Um, you might want to include the choices between factors or criteria. For example, factors that are to be, to be considered in a custody case under OCGA section 19-6-9 that has that lengthy recitation of different factors. Uh, I believe there are 19 of them uh, recited in that different code section. Um, and then also things like factors or considerations that are used to arrive at the ultimate decision in the case. The next section would be the analysis, and that is where they, I guess, the rubber really meets the road. That's where you look at the relationship between the findings of fact you made and the principles of law you, you identified and show how they jive or don't jive. Yeah, that's exactly right. This is where you apply the law to the evidentiary facts that you found and, and have recited earlier, um, and also where you point out where the how the factual conclusions and credibility um, considerations or credibility findings that you've made, um, how all of those tie together um, with those principles of law. So the goal of all this analysis should be to demonstrate to all those audiences we talked about earlier that the ruling is correct, fair, and well-reasoned. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think I think that's something that we owe to the audiences, not just to tell them what we're doing, not just to tell them why we're doing it, but to give it to them in a way that makes sense so that even if they don't agree with it, they can understand how you arrived at the, the final resolution of the case. Now, the next element, and, and that sort of brings us to that, the next element is the conclusions of law. This is the section that answers the questions that were outlined in the previous section that we called the issues section. If the issues were stated as questions, then the conclusion section would turn those questions into statements. The final element of any good order is the order section. This is where you tell someone to do or stop doing something or make some sort of final award of damages. Here's where your sentence or exercise some mercy. 
Yeah, in short, this is really the section that commands the parties. Here's where you earn the big money. Well, folks, those are the basic tips for good judicial writing. Wait for Elmo and cue him up. Three, two. Remember your ABCs, audience, brevity, and clarity. And stay away from those abhorrent passive verbs. Or the zombies will come and eat your brains. Put the important stuff first. Invert your pyramids. And remember the seven or eight elements to a good order. Folks, thank you for listening. I hope it wasn't as painful as you thought it was going to be and no AirPods were thrown or poles were run into or whatever. Thanks, folks. Thank you for listening. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. And... Elmo says... Wash your hands. Thank you, folks, for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This podcast was originally the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Special thanks to the University of Georgia College of Law and specifically Jim Henneberger uh, for their technical assistance and providing the studio for us. Thanks, as always, to Stephen Turner and Turner Up Media, who does his best to get as much of our stupidity as he can. But he can't get it all. We are eternally grateful to CSCJ, the Council of Superior Court Judges, for allowing us to handle NJO and their support in this project. Folks, these are our own opinions. They represent the opinions of Wade Padgett and Tane Kell and do not reflect the opinions of the Council of Superior Court Judges, UGA College of Law, ICJE, or really anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at our website at goodjudgepod.com or you can contact us on email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Folks, please rate and review our podcast on whatever listening app you may be using. It'll go a long way to help others find the podcast. So, Tane, I guess we better bang the gavel on this one. Anything else you feel like we need to say? No, that's all, Wade. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Mint Podcast.